the study of race, politics, and culture at the University of Chicago, New Dawn, a podcast about understanding the connections between race, capitalism, and neoliberalism, with your host, Michael Dawson. It's my pleasure to introduce a friend and colleague, co-director of the Chicago Center for Contemporary Theory, known locally as 3CT, Kaushik Sondarajan, is an associate professor of anthropology and the social sciences in the College of the University of Chicago. His work has focused on the increased corporatization of life science research, the emergence of new technologies and epistemologies within the life sciences, such as genomics, and highlighting the fact that these techno-scientific and market emergence are global phenomena. Rajan is the author of Biocapital, The Constitution of Post-Genomic Life, and he has written extensively in providing ways to think about a current moment in world history that is significantly shaped by techno-scientific capitalism. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, we're, Michael. It's a pleasure. We're going to talk about your work, but one of, I think we're going to start someplace slightly different today. Mm -hmm. uh, you wrote a very persuasive and, ins and insightful piece on the elections a few months ago and put, it, put the election of Donald Trump in global uh, comparison, thinking about how it was similar and different to other, the election of other right-wing populists of the world, both in the West and the global South. So my first question for you is, how has your thinking changed, or has it changed in the months since the inauguration about the meaning of the election for politics in the United States and globally? You know, I, I wrote that piece not as someone who is really knowledgeable about the American political situation, but more as an elections geek. Mm -hmm. And I've been one for uh, <clears throat> many, many years in India, elections for a long time. And so I've, I've, I've become quite geeky about, about the elections here. And I guess, I guess there were, you know, I, I mean, I mean, that I, I was writing that out of a place of deep depression, as many people were in and, and trying more than anything else to get a sense of of coordinates you know what's what's going on here and for me the coordinates that are afforded tend to be comparative and tend to be from india mm -hmm. and the thing that i wanted to figure out and i still want to figure out i mean on the one hand there is this rise of global right-wing authoritarianism around the world but at the same time i wanted to figure out whether what was happening with Modi in India electorally was similar to or different to what's happening with Trump here. And I thought then, and I think I still think now, that there are key differences. And I think just from an electoral point of view, it feels to me that the situation is more open here, in that I think that electorally Trump's election was extremely contingent. And I still maintain illegitimate in that in that no other major democracy does someone who get three million votes less than his opponent become a president, right? So it really mm -hmm. has to do with the contingencies of the process. Right. Whereas I think Modi had a mandate and I think he still has that mandate. And so sociologically I think therefore there's there's something that's that's quite different going on. And I guess the thing that I'm still wrestling with, and this is an artificial binary, is to think about what elements 
of far-right mobilizations in particular places are counter-revolutionary and what elements are reactionary. In other words, what elements are really transforming the fundamental value systems and in institutional structures of representative democracy in ways that have long-term effects that I think Reagan had, for instance. Mm -hmm. And in what ways is this sort of the last gasp of a sort of social and political reaction of old institutional privilege that at some level is not no longer tenable. And, 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 yeah. one, of the, one of the things that, many things that I'm very geeky about is 20th, mid 20th century and early 20th century history. Mm. Not just the history of the left and various social movements, but also the rise of the right in various right. contexts. And one of the fears I have, and it, it, it's certainly not completely rational, but I don't yeah. think it's completely irrational either, is that there are historical precedents where someone can get elected either th through institutional idiosyncrasies like in the United States and Electoral College, which yeah. you point to in your piece, or due to a temporary economic downturn or what have you. Right. But then being having access to the seat of power can lead to institutional transformations exactly. that undermine democracy. We've heard a lot of rumblings recently about Trump thinking about amendments to the First Amendment yes. um, and other institutional protections for democratic uh, governments to the degree that you have it at all in the United States. We see certainly a change in the Department of Justice prosecuting people for laughing mm -hmm. at sessions. So one of the things that I worry about with respect to the election of Trump is that even, even given the extraordinarily flawed institutional context of what passes for democracy in the United States, it can be radically transformed if we're not vigilant and organized. In your paper, you also talked about some specific dangers that a Trump presidency represented. Mm. Can you say a little bit more about that? I'm, I'm terrified about the things that, 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 that you're terrified about because I think that what the, the re really open question at this point has to do with the strength and resilience of American ins democratic institutions. And I think there is a certain line of thought, and Obama has voiced it, that you know ultimately the institutions are strong and they will prevail. But I don't feel as, as, as optimistic as, as he does. But, but, but I do think there, you know, there are institutions and they do have certain kinds of strength and resilience. The thing that really scares me is that one of the two major political parties I think is an extremist party that is that mm -hmm. does not respect the institutional democratic structure in a manner that it perhaps even did two decades ago. And so I think there it goes far beyond beyond Trump. And the the stealing of the Supreme Court seat is just a classic example and and I don't think it got the play that it could have because of course, you know, missiles were launched the same day. And so, so I'm terrified about those kinds of things, especially the attack on the press and the judiciary. I think the attack on the legislature already started in earnest with the Tea Party movement. My colleague Susan Gall gave a talk yesterday where she was drawing com comparisons with Hungary and the transformations that Viktor Orban has made over the last seven years. And she thinks about it in terms of what she calls a mafia state. And 
I think that's a really useful and terrifying parallel to draw upon. I mean, she suggested that these transformations will take and have taken much longer in the US than in Hungary because there's a more entrenched institutional representative democratic structure. But basically, in a nutshell, what she's saying is that what is at stake in that transformation is the appropriation of the state to turn it into a private business in a mafia form. And so the crony capitalism elements of Trump really terrified me. The, yeah. one, of the, one of the terms you used in your paper was mafia capitalism. Okay. Can you say more about what you mean by that? Well, I think it is, I mean, I mean, now I remember Sue Gal's rendering more than I do my own, but, but <laughs> because it was, it was better. <laughs> more recent. But, but I think it, you know, it, it was this idea that, well, okay, so I, I think, I think backing up there is, you know, there is a sort of larger history that's very important in certainly 20th century American history of the place of corporate power in relation to the state. Yes. And I think this is something that Thorsten Veblen was concerned about in the early 20th century, yes. and basically suggesting that corporations are formal coalitions of ownership that can become vested interests in and of themselves. And if they capture the state, then the state, instead of serving the public interest, serves the vested interests. And I think that has happened over the long 20th century in many ways. And I think that revolution, if you want to call it, that really accelerated the speed of that. But here, the elements of the sort of, the mafia elements of this, if you like, are A, the way in which this becomes so intimately about kinship in a way that, you know, I mean, I think it's extraordinary that there's the sort of constitutional emoluments clause that was devised precisely to prevent this kind of situation of blatant, transparent, crony capitalism and conflict of interest. It's not clear that that it has any teeth. It might mm -hmm. with, you know, with Democrats in Congress or something it might. But but basically, again, one of the two major political parties is allowing a constitutional violation and I think the other element of the other mafia element that that Sue in particular highlighted very well is what the mafia does is it promises you protection from itself. Right. And so so it creates a threat to public interest and well-being that's perhaps unfolding as we speak with the unraveling of the Affordable Care Act right today in, in, in Congress. We have functioning systems of governance and care and so on being actively dismantled and then saying, well, if you want to be protected from what we are doing, then do what we want you to do. Another example I, I read about in today's Times was there's actually a rival to Fox News, it's Sinclair News, and they, the changes in FCC policy yeah. that has now will allow them, which who are already the largest holder of independent stations, to buy tri Tribune Media. 
and they've hired uh, one of Trump's campaign spokespeople right. to be one of their talking heads. The only thing that might prevent this is the Murdochs are going after them to prevent this <laughs> right. merger. They're making right. their own bid for, the, for right. Tribune Media. But right. one of the trying to not just suppress the media, but to actually create a media alternative media that becomes like a state media right. is right. something that is quite... In fact, they were actually provide the campaign provided Sinclair News right. with already formulated stories to yeah. run as is. That's something that goes far beyond what we've seen in American electoral politics up to now, except for maybe the 19th century, late 19th century yes. during the Gilded Age. Yes. One of the aspects that perhaps has puzzled me a bit that I'm not sure to the degree that it signifies something we don't already know, but what do you make of the president's nodding toward various authoritarian leaders around the world, whether it's Egypt, the Philippines, or what's it, what is he signaling, particularly domestically? He's signaling because I can't get into his head, and thank, <laughs> thank, thank God for that. Uh, but, uh, but, but I, you know, I mean, I suspect that there's genuine admiration, not just for these people as strong men mm -hmm. and a certain kind of masculinity that they embody, but I think also an admiration and an aspiration for systems that allow these strong men to operate in a less fettered manner than he has to operate today. And yeah. yeah, I mean, when I when I first read it, I I think uh, an unhelpful response a lot of us have is that is to underestimate the potential danger. So I thought right. this is this it reminded me of Marcus Garvey because Garvey ex expressed ad admiration mm -hmm. for Benito Mussolini, for the provisional Re Irish Republican Army, for any movement that he saw as strong and nationalist, right. regardless of content. Uh, right. The Bolsheviks. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. these are obviously ideologically incoherent, both leaders and, and political movements, but they were all strong nationalists. Yes. And so I, in yes. some ways I said, oh, well, this sort of reminds me of Garvey, yeah. which is yeah. both. But on the other hand, it also given that one of the things he wants to do is be able to strip American citizenship from people who he disagrees with. Yeah. It also, I think, did think it signaled a, a type of yes. longing for authoritarian regime that was institutionally unfettered, to use your phrase, yes. that speaks to a much darker dystopian authoritarian it regime. It does. What I'm still trying to figure out is I'm sure other people have and have had that longing. What I'm trying to figure out is the transparency of his longing. Like mm -hmm. he's making no... And, and I don't know yet whether that's really an indication of a power that he will be able to acquire or whether that will be his undoing, the fact that, that he's so not subtle about it. I think that's, for me, an open question. I think the, I mean, the election that I'm following for a variety of reasons that don't need to be explicated is the second stage elections in France. Course, yeah. Because, again, we're talking about perhaps what might become one of the two major political parties, clearly being an extremist yes. party, and one that has taken relatively little pains to try to domesticate itself. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. The stakes of that are high, aren't they? Yeah. yeah, they're extremely high. Yes. And will have consequences far beyond even the EU yeah. if Le Pen does, does win. Of course. And the last debate in France, which I think was held this week, was one that was much more like the ones we see in, in American politics right. and as opposed to what's been the norm in French yeah. politics. Yeah. 
So the type of democratic norms, whether within various national contexts, are being undermined in quite Correct. a few places at this Correct. point. Yeah, yeah. Um, including perhaps the UK. To talk a bit, and I know we should, one of the questions we've asked all of our guests is how has the current domestic and international political context affected their own work and how has it mm. affected yours, how has it affected your thinking about global pharmaceutical industries, right. transformations of capital, etc. Right. The side of it that that sort of continues or intensifies my interest really does have to do with this question of corporate capitalism mm-hmm. and the question of the power of corporations including, you know, of, of different kinds, multinational, big multinational corporations, um, family businesses, oligarchies, and so on. But one one of the things that, that I've been tracing in my work around global pharmaceuticals is, again, the question of the power of corporations is always immediately a question of the state. As in, in what ways does the state construct market terrains in order to allow or enable or constrain corporate powers in certain kinds of ways as opposed to others, right? And so on the one hand, I am interested in this in the way that that Marxists such as Moish Poston are in understanding the value dynamics of capital. But at the same time, I think there is something that a lot of orthodox Marxism today hasn't maybe talked about in its own terms, which is what is the nature of the corporate form and what is the relationship of the corporate form? Typically, I would say a financialized corporate form because the corporate form itself has become progressively more financialized, uh, certainly in this country, but everywhere in the world in the second half of the 20th century. And here the people I find really interesting to think with, because there were two people who were writing about this at exactly the same time in completely different parts of the world with different political ideologies, and those were Thorsten Veblen and Lenin. Mm -hmm. And they were both talking about financialized corporate capital as a specific kind of institutional structure that is able to appropriate the state by virtue of uh, legal mechanisms, for instance, and, and, and powers that are given by the state to the corporations in ways that have consequences, and specifically in ways, and both of them agree on this, even though Veblen is writing to save liberalism and Lenin is writing to destroy it, in ways that both of them say are necessarily imperialist. Right. And, and so because the sort of expansive tendencies of capital in the hands of corporations necessarily takes them. And, and so then the question of the state becomes also the question of either the state in relation to other states or the question of global governance. And so one of the things I've been very interested in in my work is the role of institutions like the World Trade Organization. But since then, known as TRIPS plus arrangements like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Mm -hmm. not just in instituting certain kinds of capital flows to the extent of others, but also in instituting certain kinds of governance regimes that have significant constraints on national state sovereignty in enacting public interest legislation, such as public health for its citizens and so on. So I think the interesting question with this regime is 
which I don't understand fully, is the question of whether and how its nationalist rhetoric on global free trade, what implications that has for some of these dynamics. Because one of the things that was, I think, happening without interruption, certainly since Reagan, but probably before, was a transformation of this. I mean, we talked about the mafia state, but the transformation of the state to an investor state. Yeah. Lee, you know is invested in an investor state ideal but but what the relationship between that and more protectionist trade policies might be i think is an open question yeah a note and a question well note a comment and a question mm. a note is that the work of those such as veblen and Lillen no. are once again becoming important to think yes. about and one of my colleagues adam get Hobson's work, which Lenin's was based on. Right. And what really struck me and what I had forgotten, because I hadn't read it, in pro- read it in probably 20 years, was the degree to which Hobson argues that imperial- empire is not very good for anybody but corporations. Right. <laughs> so you really have to capture this. The corporate form yeah. has to capture right. the state to justify empire. It's not good for market expansion. It's right. not good, you know, well, military elites might like it too, I think he pointed right. out. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> but besides the corporations and military yeah. lease, it doesn't do a lot for either the state or for any other economic actors. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the certain form of financialization right. with the corporate form that's critical. In turn, with respect to the current regime, one of the questions I find fascinating, and I think it goes, I think there's a few of us who were using graveyard humor to talk about, well, Marx was right, it was the secretary branch of the bourgeoisie, at least it is now. Right. But what we forget is that the, the, there are divisions, and there are certainly ideological divisions within the Trump administration. Yes. So the nationalism, to some degree, is being fueled by those such as Bannon yes. and the ultra-white, uh, as you point out, white supremacist nationalists right. that are a central part of his coalition. But there's still the corporate types that are very well represented in the of West course. Wing, of course, um, and, and in, within his own family. Of course. Um, so I think part of what I mean, his way he walked back his stance on NAFTA, yeah. I think is is indicative of the phenomenon that you're pointing to, which is the degree to which the corporate side of the coalition yes. is being dominant on a number of issues, and not necessarily yes. all issues. Yes. And I don't think that battle's over either. Yeah. 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 I agree. I don't think that's over. But I think and I think if one is thinking about changing orientations over the first hundred days, I mean, again, with Trump, nothing is irreversible. But I think it is his sort of settling down into a relationship with the corporate wing of the Republican Party, closer relationships with the Koch brothers, apparently, and all the rest of that, right? Mm-hmm. Influence of the Mercer family. And and I think, you know, I mean, the kinds of agents who were behind the rise of the Tea Party, for instance, um, there seems to be greater cohabitation now with the, with the Trump regime than maybe there was 100 days ago. As we, as I stated at the beginning of our conversation, you're co-director of 3CT. Mm. 3CT has been an extraordinarily vibrant site for a number of discussions and theorizing about our current period historically, of course, as well. What has the 
Cinder done recently and what's he think about doing in the future with mm -hmm. respect to thinking through these questions? I know there's been a lot of attention yeah. paid, for example, to financialization and changes and debates over the nature of capitalism yeah. today in the future. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think there are various strands to this and, and I can't represent all of them in response, but I think one thing that, that has been emerging is a question of how do we think about Trumpism? in relation to contemporary theory. I don't think that we've entirely figured that out in terms of the multiplicity of formats and conversations mm -hmm. that we can have. But one conversation that we did have that, that Shannon Doddy organized with a number of graduate students in February was a day-long event on Trumpism in the university. And that was, that was a very successful conversation. And I want to think about ways to continue that because... Even prior to the election, we had been thinking about the importance of beginning a conversation on the corporatization of the university that is relevant apropos you know, transformations in this and other universities, but that's also relevant in relation to some of the whole you know, issues around free speech, safe spaces, conversations around, around race on campus and so on. And regardless of the election, it would have been important to think about a series of conversations. I think in light of the election, that's become urgent. And the other thing we're hoping to kick off the ground, Isser and Lisa Widin will probably lead, is some kind of conversation on global authoritarianisms and trying to think about how we, indeed, your comparative questions, how we can think about these things comparatively. So that's, that's something we're in the process of talking about for next year, for the next couple of years. One of the aspects of your work, but I was thinking about it before, I became familiar with your work because I was at Berkeley for, for a bit um, as a student, was the, how biological scientists in particular mm -hmm. have been one of the cutting edges through which the corporatization of the university has occurred. Yeah. Um, and the type of restrictions on research yeah. um, that have occurred and yeah. directions of research. Yeah, yeah. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, the biological science, it's, it's kind of interesting because two kinds of movement have happened in the biological sciences. And one is, and again, certainly this is a post-80s phenomenon in multiple structural ways. The biological sciences have themselves become corporatized and they've been a driver of the corporatization of the mm -hmm. university through things like the Bayh-Dole Act, intellectual property regimes, mm -hmm. and the closer ties between um, you know, university research and venture capital. At the same time, for a long, long time, the biological sciences in the U.S. has also been one of the most vibrant institutional sites for public-funded research through the NIH. And I think that the latter is under threat at this moment in ways that it hasn't been since the Nixon administration. Hmm. And the consequences of... In, 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 and, and by that, what I also mean is that corporate research and development has been underwritten in this country and globally by public money enormously, and enormously by American taxpayer money and yep. enormously through the NIH, which, in, which was institutionalized in post-World War II science policy as really fundamental research and basic research in ways that have had transformative effects. And that's, that's, so the corporatization is continuing unfettered, but the sort of public underwriting of that, 
that has cre- allowed all sorts of other kinds of creative freedoms that have allowed for transformative innovation, that's coming under threat. And I think that's a really dangerous configuration. I've seen part of that danger. I have a background. I worked in Silicon Valley for 10 years, mm-hmm. and I've taught a course on dem- demography and information technology revolution for 20 years. And much more so than in the biological sciences, in the computer sciences and engineering and related enterprises, that's been funded from the corporate side. Right. There's been right. much, except for DARPA, except, except for the right. Defense Department linked, right. there's been much less public money, money involved in investment. So you whole research parks and, and industries were built around Stanford and Palo Alto right. and right. then further and further south right. as, and then across the bay as time went on. Yeah. But that was all, almost all private money. And, right. pro, and you have right. labs that, at Stanford that are built by Microsoft, built mm-hmm. by Hewlett, in an earlier generation, Hewlett Packard and Varian. Right. Right. And that, I think, it's not the model we really want to see, but no. I think we're seeing it with NIH and other yeah. public funding yes. being under, yes. under assault. And, and the other thing that you mentioned that's important is that to the extent that state funding exists, then it moves more towards military rather Absolutely. than civilian. And arenas such as synthetic biology, which see the coming together of biology and engineering, you're seeing yeah. that. You're seeing a sort of highly securitized public investment in, yeah. in those kinds of areas. Yeah. So one of the things I like to do in my research on black radical thought is counterpose two of the major trends in 20th century black thought, mm. one which can be traced back, well, one which is a liberal trend and in its most radical form was epitomized by those such as Martin Luther King Jr. and one that was, as Robin Kelly, a historian at UCLA, has pointed out, has much more of a Maoist influence, but also, if you scratch the surface, essentially a Leninist influence mm. on it. And in my work, I, depending on what type of mood I am, I, back, I bounce between two questions. Dr. King asked a question just before his death, where do we go from here? And, yeah. of course, Lennon asked, what is to be done? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think both questions are relevant today. Yeah. yeah. What are you thinking on either of those? You know, I wish I knew the answer. I don't know the answer of, of where do we go from here or what is to be done, but, but I, do, I do think a couple of things. And, and so... For me, some of the coordinates of thinking of this moment conceptually, uh, some of the best coordinates have been provided both by Marx in the 18th Brumaire Mm -hmm. and by Gramsci writing at a moment that retrospectively was the dawn of fascism. But but in both of these situations where sort of counter-revolution prevailed for a certain period of time, there were open situations that they were writing in. Mm-hmm. And so, so even though it was the dawn of fascism in Italy, Gramsci was also writing at the moment when the Communist Party of Italy was coming into being and when all kinds of workers' movements were happening in terms of factory occupations in Milan and so on that have had decades-long implications for, for left politics. So I do think that this is an open situation. The thing that... And, and, and here, you know... I have agreements and disagreements with various friends and comrades about this. I think it is vital that the state has to be part of the solution. So, so, and, and, and I think this, especially with some knowledge of places like India, where the state remains a sort of violent corporate patriarchal interest, but has also been the vehicle through which many kinds of social justice and public justice demands have been made and met. And at least 
in India, but also in other places such as South Africa, which I've become very interested in, the courts and the law have become a very important site through which certain kinds of demands have been made. And they've been made through an activation of a certain kind of constitutional hermeneutics, where the courts basically, you know, this isn't sort of Western rights applied Mm-hmm. in the post-colony. There is there is a sort of constitutional hermeneutics where certain ideas and ideals of the constitution are activated towards the ends of... Now, that alone is not sufficient, so all politics cannot be a state politics. But I'm very resistant to a certain sort of left idea that says any engagement with the state is, is reformist or bourgeois or a sellout or whatever. I think we have to fight for the state. Even the Black Panther Party mm-hmm. saw made demands on the state, right. even if it was in the sense of exposing the weaknesses of certain forms of liberalism. Right. So I don't see how we avoid that. I yeah. think actually it's not something to be avoided, but something yeah. to be that's part of our toolkit. Yes. Uh, I ignored one of our colleagues who's one of the fellows in 3CT about a year ago when I too flippantly said that black people have never had much use for anarchy. (laughs) (laughs) And anarchists as a political movement. And that's actually historically true. But there's actually good reasons for that. And part of the reasons is, well, the state certainly has been a center for oppression and brutality and and genocide against various peoples of color in North America. It's also been the site of transformation movements as well. And you can't lose sight of both sides of that. Absolutely. The other thing I think that we that to take away from thinking about the state, and one of the things is to think about political parties. And here I am much more on the fence. I know that you think that the Democratic Party can be an ally, but I do worry mm. that the type of corporate forces mm. that we were talking about earlier in our conversation have too captured the National Democratic right. Party as opposed to working at the grassroots level, low right. and very local areas. Right. So I do think that the Democratic Party, I know there's debate in, among African-American trade unions, African-American writers about Democratic Party, but in its current mode, I think it's lost. was predictable only in the sense that it has gone out of its way since the Reagan era, no, actually mm-hmm. earlier, to try to demobilize the most radical yeah. Aspects, yeah. Uh, populations within the country. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, you know, I agree that the Democratic Party is a corporatist party at its core, right? More hopeful and optimistic about it than some people not... Uh, in the sense that it would be the vanguard of progressive change, (laughs) but in the sense that it is a broad tent organization through which certain kinds of demands can be made. And I guess guess here, just two points. One is that with a comparative frame of reference, in India, I think one of the reasons why Modi's hegemony is so complete is that the Congress party is absolutely corrupt, defunct, dynastic party. Mm -hmm. It's not an opposition party. And I think the Democratic Party still is. But I think the second thing, and, you know, I mean, I I guess there are two elements to progressive politics, and one is to have a fairly good sense of what what demands one wants to make beyond what is being given. Mm -hmm. But the other is also the capacity to make distinctions. And I think, you know, I mean, this is a reductionist statement, but I think it is the case that one political party in this country today supports discrimination and one political party opposes it. Of all kinds. Mm-hmm. It's not one that I take for granted. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
I'm not quite that, sure I'm okay. quite as optimistic as you yeah, are, I but <laughs> I do have, uh, I do think there's one sort of organizing principle <laughs> that we tend to forget, mm. much like many places around the world. This mm. is a federal system, yes. and it is deeply federal. Right. And that means that we really should be thinking about organizing in local context. Absolutely. I mean, we don't, Absolutely. not everything is local. I, I've never believed that, but... Or we do have to understand the local context within which we are. And some places, the Democratic Party is not... The yes. Democratic Party, just like the Black Panther Party, is not the same party. Yes, that's true. In, that's the, Democrat, true. The, the, in, in the Black Panther Party in New York was not the same as it was in Chicago, was not right. the same as it was in Oakland. Right. Um, the Democratic Party is the same, right. and I think local organizers have to come to grips yes. with where they are and how, what they can do. Yes. You might be able to do have a progressive political party that can make large gains, as in Jackson, Mississippi. Right. That's one model, but there are other models as well. Right. No, I I agree with you. I don't, you know, I don't think that we can repose faith in the Democratic Party as a vanguard that will, that will solve problems, but I, you know, that will solve all the problems or even the essential ones. But I think, you know, when I think about the Democratic Party in 2004, under Daschel and Gephardt and that lot, and what it is now, where it's been forced to respond to a certain kind of grassroots movement that is, of course, partial and selective and not mm-hmm. intersectional in all kinds of ways. It seems like a mechanism still exists within the party to exert pressure on it. And you know, I think on the one hand, it's an open question as to what movements like Indivisible might do. Mm-hmm. And I think they could be very Im- important. But I also think there's an interesting story that I don't know enough about beyond the geekiness of Democratic Party gains in the Southwest that has involved enormous voter organization among Hispanic populations, including union organization in places like Las Vegas and so on. And I think that's a non-trivial story that's unfolded over the last decade that sort of the major media has not really focused on. Well, one of the, I think, aspects (laughs) of the major media and some of the larger... Philosophic and other types of sort of progressive organizations that focus on that this debate is going on not only in the Democratic Party or among progressives, but in unions. Yes. To what degree are we going to embrace immigrants? To what degree are demands around various types of around homophobia, around patriarchy, around various forms of racial domination are going to be suppressed? And I think as we start seeing victories in places like Los Angeles and the Southwest and Jackson, mm. Mississippi and small towns in Georgia in yeah. deeply conservative states, but centered around the organizing of immigrants and people of color, right. uh, some of whom are immigrants, some who are citizens, some who are not, yeah. these long-term, highly institutionalized and bureaucratic for what for now uh, are called progressive forces, whether they're political parties, unions, or others, are going to have to respond if they want to survive. Yes, yes, yeah, that's true, that's true. And I think, okay, I'm going to say something that will get me into trouble with some of my friends at least. But I think the thing that is that has not been helpful for me in left discourse around this is this sort of, artificial separation between so-called class politics and identity politics. Oh, you won't get in trouble here, though. (laughs) 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 That that debate has captured my academic work. The divide (laughs) between my academic work and other work diminishes it. (laughs) 
as all of my critics predicted it would. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, first of all, any reasonable history of the U.S. has shown that every time we have tried to really, really emphasize the divisions between what I refuse to call identity politics for good reasons and class politics has led to the defeat of the left, period. In absentia. Absolutely. And the, yeah. the times have not changed. In fact, yeah. times, well, times have changed. But what has not changed is that I think we're even more in a period now where making those divisions will ensure an authoritarian regime. Yes. That will be very hard to undermine for, for decades, if yeah. not generations. I, I agree. I think that the political pragmatics of it are bad, but also, and I would like, you know, I would love to hear more from you rather than, because as, as someone who's not really come out of, of, of this history. One of the things that that I really am troubled by is also this notion of identity politics. Because on the one hand, of course, there is a specific historical genealogy of the term that, that comes out of, of black feminism and other places that, that has a, a real hi- situated history. But, but the way in which it's used as if it was only a politics of particularity is really to me problematic because if one looks at a lot of both decolonial and desegregationist thought of the 20th century, it's an aspiration to universal universal values and a sort of demand that actual universal values be granted to everybody. And so, you know, to be crude about it, I think identity politics is, is the term used by white people when other people demand universality. That's, I think, is historically pretty accurate, mm-hmm. at least in the United States, but I yeah. think there's... Or not by white people, but by whiteness as an institution. Exactly. So, yeah. And what is... one of the, when, I, when I read people like Richard Rorty in his um, work where he de- decries identity politics or Todd Gitlin or many others... Mm-hmm. When you actually look at, read, for example, the program of the Black Panther Party, it's redistributive. Right. You know, right. any social democrat could be could agree with ninety percent of the program of the Black Panther Party, yes. uh, and that's true for most Black radical party and other other movements that have been called redistributive. It's the demand for equality and inclusion. Right. It's not even primarily a demand for recognition. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well. So, this has been a great conversation. Hopefully no, we can continue you. it offline as well. Yes, <laughs> it's, been, it's been a privilege. So thank, thank you, you so very much. much.